Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of James today called Faith That Works. So turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Count It All Joy. The test of the greatness of any man or woman is is not how they do when things are going well. You know, when you're winning every game and when you're scoring all the goals and when your business is doing well and your marriage is the envy of everyone else and your kids are the model of how they ought to be and when your name is mentioned in the hushed tones of veneration, you will learn nothing about yourself. But when everything that once made you the object of admiration is removed, you will learn who you are and what you love and what you think is ultimately valuable. You'll learn so much more in the house of mourning than you will learn in the house of laughter. Let me give you an example of that. I noticed that not long ago, John Robertson McQuilkin passed away. He entered into the gates of glory and received his eternal reward. John Robertson McQuilkin had served as the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary for 22 years. He resigned from that position in 1990 to care full-time for his wife, who was then suffering from Alzheimer's. In a letter he wrote to the seminary, he explained his decision. He said, It is clear to me that Muriel needs me now full-time. My decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago, when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. And then he went on. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me. Her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressed frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. And Dr. McQuilkin was good as his word. When he was asked about his sacrifice, he would deny it. He would say, no, I don't have to care for her. I love to care for her. She's my precious. I use this wonderful account of love as my opening illustration as as we dive into the book of James. I have said that James, the senior pastor in the church at Jerusalem, is writing to members of his dispersed congregation. Let's read verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. We have said that James is the half-brother of Jesus, and as such, it would have been very easy for him to play on that reputation. But I notice the humility in his writing. He refers to himself not as a pastor or as the brother of Jesus, but as a servant of God and also as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. No lofty title, just a sure affirmation that this is his role, to bend the knee to Jesus and to call him his Lord and to respond in obedience to his commands. The letter of James is addressed to the Jewish community that is spread abroad. You might wonder how it is that I've said that this letter is written to the members of his congregation and not to the wider Jewish community that were a part of the Jewish diaspora. 
And the reason I say that is because this letter was written while the Christian movement was still in its very early infancy. While it is no doubt true that many of the Jews who came to Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost witnessed the outpouring of the Spirit, and then they heard Peter's first-ever Christian sermon, then they had repented of their sins, and then they were baptized into Jesus, but these people became the very first Christian church. So after Pentecost, many Jerusalem Christians, they were Jews, sold houses and lands to allow those Jews from all over the empire to stay in Jerusalem and form the church. After all, they needed to be instructed in the faith. They needed to stay there. And because of the crisis of the need of the hour, people sold everything they had so that they would become a part of the first Christian church. And in the early days, the apostles led that Jerusalem church. But then as persecution broke out, the church was scattered, and many of those early Christians would have been forced out of Jerusalem, many going back to their hometowns throughout the Roman Empire. But their time away, no doubt, had been costly. I have no doubt many of them had nothing for them when they came back. So now after the apostles had established the Jerusalem church, James was given key leadership. And like a good pastor, he's concerned with with all of those who used to be a part of the Jerusalem church, and he's writing those scattered Jewish believers scattered throughout the Roman world. And what does he say? So listen to his first words, and they're recorded in James 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So please understand, these words are written to people who very likely had lost a great deal because of their conversion. And if we're not careful here, these words might sound somewhat cavalier. It might sound to us like he's saying, well, just praise God for everything you've suffered. And by the way, I've met folks like that, and and I, for my part, am still somewhat proud of myself for not punching them when they say it. No one appreciates those glib platitudes easily delivered to those who are suffering. So is that what James is doing? Well, no, he's not. When James speaks of joy, in the Jewish tradition, joy is what theologians like to call eschatological joy. See, that means a joy in what God will bring about at the end of history, in the last days, when the kingdom of God is revealed. It's a joy that anticipates the great unveiling of the plans of God at the end of time. You know, in this sense, you will hear me say it over and over again, James sounds so much like Jesus. Remember Jesus said, and it's recorded in Matthew 5, 11 to 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So, like Jesus, James is saying when you suffer now, you need to focus your hope and your consolation and anticipation, what he calls joy, in the fulfillment of God's purposes. Let the difficulties of the present hour, he says, build your anticipation in the long-term purposes of God. Notice then that he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. See, James doesn't want his congregation to think that only certain trials will qualify, but every kind of trial. 
Look, sometimes we, and I mean we in our day, when we hear of Christians suffering persecution in another country, well, we will put that trial into one category. And then when someone gets cancer, well, that's a different kind of trial. And then when someone loses his or her job because his or her company is downsizing, well, that, that's a different kind of trial again. And, and then if your spouse commits adultery, well, that's a completely different trial. And from some trials like persecution, well, we think we get peace. We're standing with Jesus after all, but company downsizing, well, so we think that's just bad luck. So we take no joy in that. No, no. James is speaking about any hardship that any Christian encounters at any time. Count it eternal joy. Why? Because he says, this is a test of your faith. See, would you notice the word test? Later in James, we're going to have to learn the difference between a test and a temptation. Now, I say that because I wish to point out here that in the Greek, the two words, test, and the word temptation, well, they're the same Greek word. But even though it's the same word in Greek, the difference is profound. A temptation is an attempt to entice you to do evil. A test is an indicator of how well you're doing. Let me explain. An old catechism from the 16th century has the following line. It says, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. What a wonderful thought. God has arranged each hardship we face. It's a test, says James, a test that produces steadfastness. Other translations say endurance, and still others say perseverance. The word means a capacity to bear up under hardship. James is saying that God has arranged your hardship so that a new facet of your character can be added to you. If the hardship had not come your way, a certain aspect of your character would never have been able to evolve. God who loves you perfectly has added something to your character that you needed, something that he knew you could not have unless you walked through your current hardship. You see, if you stand firm in your faith until the end and not fall away, you need steadfastness. Just like tempered metal is far more precious than raw metal, your faith needs to be forged through fire. Reversal of fortune and disappointment and loss, any testing prepares us for an eternal joy in God's kingdom. A loving Heavenly Father will not withhold that from you. Back to the Bible Canada has wrapped up the Israel Experience 2022 with a success like never before which is why we had no hesitation with jumping right into planning our Israel Experience 2023. The dates will be April 16th to the 24th, with an optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. This trip is an opportunity to see and experience so many of the critical biblical sites you're so familiar with in the Bible. Like one guest said, we've been in ministry for nearly 40 years, read our Bibles through nearly every year, but this took it from 2D to 3D. If you'd like to take your walk with Christ to the next level, be sure to register as soon as possible. Spots fill up fast. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 to reserve your spot or visit backtothebible.ca. James promises us that once steadfastness has had its full effect in the life of the believer, 
We become perfect, he says, lacking nothing. Now, the word perfect strikes us as a very odd word, doesn't it? We all know that perfection is not obtained on this side of eternity. And so the idea that someone becomes patient and enduring under a trial, unmoved in their confidence in Christ and perfect in this matter, well, that seems impossible. What can James possibly mean when he says that believers become perfect? Well, in order to understand what James is after, we need to analyze the word he uses, translated into our English word perfect. The Greek word is the word teleos. It can be translated as perfect. It can also be translated as mature or even the end of a matter. James means that God is at work maturing the believer so that his or her response is one of consistent action. When we're tested, we aren't to panic. We're to trust. There's a measured sense of confidence in life, reacting out of confidence in the goodness of God. If you want some help in that, consider how Paul uses the very same word in Philippians 3, verse 15. You know, in that passage, Paul argues that even while he's not perfect, nothing dissuades him from pressing on to the goal for the upward prize of the call of God. And then in verse 15, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Now, that word mature is the same word that James uses. When we're mature, our thinking around trials becomes consistent, always unmoved, always calm, always believing that God's working out his good purposes, no matter how many sorrows we may suffer or reversals or persecution or anything that constitutes a trial. Trials always produce a consistent response in mature people. They're consistent, steadfast, always putting their confidence in God, who takes us through the most difficult experiences for his glory. Let's go to verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, have you noticed how frequently Bible verses are pulled out of context, and then, once they are, they stop making sense? <laughs> I've heard people quote James 1.5 when they're making difficult decisions in their lives. Well, just ask God, and kerplunk, he will give you all the wisdom you need to make the best possible choices in life. And behind this is the idea that wisdom descends on the believer suddenly without having to do anything to attain it. Proverbs 2 verse 4 tells us to seek wisdom like silver and to search for it as for hidden treasures. And indeed, Proverbs 4 verse 7, well, in the NIV says, though it costs you all you have, get wisdom. See, the implication is that you need to fear God to start wisdom. And then you need to prize wisdom and become humble to get wisdom and spare no effort to nurture it. And yet, at least as some interpret James 1 verse 5, you just pray a prayer and God drops it willy-nilly right there into your lap. But again, the first rule of Bible study is never pull any verse out of its context. You see, when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's speaking about the wisdom that we are to rejoice in our trials, knowing that God has brought these into our lives to produce steadfastness and a consistent, confident trust in God. See, James is saying, if you react badly when trials come, perhaps you become bitter or perhaps collapsing into questioning your faith, if you fail to see the hand of God in the most difficult moments that you face, you clearly lack the wisdom to know that this very trial is from the gracious hand of a God who loves you. 
And so if you lack that kind of wisdom, you need to come to God in prayer asking him to give you the perspective so that you can have joy in your difficult trials. And if you ask him for the joy of seeing God in your most difficult trials, well, then don't fear. God will give you that kind of wisdom. He won't abandon you. He knows you're still immature, and he will give you the wisdom to see God's providential hand in all things. (laughs) And isn't that amazing how rich the Bible is when you're studying it in context? So here's the point of application. Are you upset by your trials? Do you question God because of it? Do you handle trials badly? You need to pray asking God for the wisdom to see his hand in the trials. That's a wonderful truth. Now let's carry on. I'm I'm reading verses 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, at the heart of this passage is a question we must answer. When James says that in order to receive the wisdom we need, to see the hand of God in all things, we need to ask in faith, give me wisdom to see this, and when we ask that, we will do well to ask and to answer, what is this prayer of faith? That's the question of verse 6. Let him ask in faith, says James, because when we don't ask in faith, when we doubt, we will receive nothing. So what constitutes faith? There are some who argue that faith is kind of like a force, you know, a force that you exercise that will get your prayers answered. Now, is that what James means? Well, look back again at verse 5. When we ask for wisdom from God, says James, we need to know that we're asking of a God who gives generously. Consider then not the power of your faith, because James is not talking about the power of faith. Notice again, he's speaking about the generosity of God. God has a vast treasury of good gifts, and he is not reluctant to give out of his abundance. God is a generous, not a miserly God. Our faith is not in faith. It is faith in the generosity of God. And furthermore, says James, not only is he generous, but he gives to all without reproach. So what does that mean? Well, another translation says he gives generously without finding fault. Look at it this way. Imagine you're an individual who reacts badly whenever trouble comes your way. So you blame God. You you question whether he loves you. You wonder if God's in control at all. You, You allow negative reactions to overwhelm you so that you can't think straight. You complain incessantly. And now you learn that God is directing these hardships, and he allows trials to come to you for the sake of strengthening you and maximizing your long term eternal joy. God would never have allowed these hardships into your life if he was not interested in amplifying your eternal reward. It's his loving hand that's allowed this. Ah, you finally understand, but but unfortunately, you've learned a bad habit, haven't you? You know better, but you still panic in times of trial. And so you think, well, I'll ask God to give me wisdom to handle this stuff better. But then a thought comes into your mind. Well, God knows how badly I've handled these trials in the past, and by now, he knows how defective my faith is. 
How can I even go to him seeing how badly I've handled all my trials in the past? And this now is where Pastor James helps us. He says, God will give you wisdom without bringing up all your failures. He's generous and he won't let your past failures stand in the way of learning all you need from these trials. And with his wonderful promise, James now adds a warning. You have to stop doubting the goodness of God. You can't be confident he will give you wisdom today and and then doubt that he's going to do it tomorrow. If that's what you are, you are, he says, like a wave of the sea. I mean, we've all seen it. I mean, waves go where the wind drives them. See, wherever the direction of the wind is blowing, that determines the direction of the waves. There's no consistency to waves. James calls this a double-minded man. This is the person of two personalities, two mindsets, two conflicting beliefs living within him or her. Now, here, please remember, our confidence is not in the strength of our faith. Our confidence is in the generosity of God. Take your eyes off of whether you think you believe or not and get your eyes on the generosity of God and be confident. Let me get back to Dr. McQuilkin and his wife with Alzheimer's. At some point in time, he marveled at the joy he had been given to serve her after she had served him all those years. Can I tell you what that is? That, my friends, is a person who has been given the gift of wisdom from God that allows him to properly understand the hardships he is facing. Would you like the same kind of wisdom? God is not miserly giving that only to Dr. McQuilkin while he would withhold it from you. Trust him who has your long-term good in mind. John, this brings up a great issue, I think, in the culture of our church or many churches today who who teach a faith in faith, the power of faith, rather than than the generosity of God. Yeah. Uh, Whenever we talk about the power of faith, I know, Ben, that we're not talking biblical language. Faith is just simply another word for trust, confidence in. Well, we have to ask, what are we trusting in? So if we trust in our own trust, well, then all we're doing is trusting in ourselves and rather than trusting in God. So I think when I hear this faith in faith business, it's just a man-centered gospel centered on what we can do. A God-centered gospel concentrates on what he can do. What are the resources in God? What has he promised me? Uh, What will he give to me? And so uh, I trust in him. That's what we should be saying. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us here again tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. We've all been guilty of taking for granted that God's Word is always the perfect Word and available to us at all times. That's why we wanted to share with you an amazing book that will surely lift your thinking towards Bible reading for the better. It's called Before You Open Your Bible by Matt Smethurst. In this insightful resource, you'll find wisdom and guidance on how to approach your Bible with a positive mindset so you get the most out of your time in His Word. And because the message in this book is in sync with the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, We're making this resource available as a gift free 
during the month of July. Simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your copy for free today.